invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me again to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 6. This morning we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And the title of our message is Lawsuits Among Believers. Lawsuits Among Believers. I'm going to go ahead and read the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which say this. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that a man, is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, you do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we come before you and we thank you for the opportunity to look to your word. Teach us today. Help us to have an eternal perspective on the cares of this world. We, it's so easy for us to get sucked in into worldly thinking, and this book has been so good for us, study of 1 Corinthians, to Help remove our eyes and minds and thoughts from a worldly perspective and have a perspective that is seen from heaven. So help us to have another glimpse at that this morning, that our lives might be changed to reflect what's truly important to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would imagine that just about everyone here can think of a time where they have been swindled. They have been taken. They have been uh, cheated. Uh, I, I could tell many stories, but one that I'll tell happened to me uh, when I was uh, single. I was in my 20s. I was serving in Zimbabwe and in Malawi for about 14 months. I was serving there as a missionary, uh, and um, I was, uh, my sister had come to visit me. She had brought a friend of hers uh, from college, and the two of them came all the way to Malawi, and we were going to drive down to South Africa, and there's several countries in between Central Africa and South Africa, and so uh, we were driving through from Malawi into Zambia and then into Zimbabwe, and we crossed Zambia, the Zambian-Zimbabwe border at Vic Falls, and it was a Sunday, I remember, and I needed fuel, and I wasn't sure I'd find any banks open to exchange money, 
And so I did something you're never, ever, ever, ever supposed to do, and that is I changed money with somebody on the street. But, you know, I had been a missionary for quite some time, and it wasn't my first rodeo. So I thought, you know, how, you know, this, this, you know, I, I, I have some street smarts. So um, I remember uh, the guy said to me, uh, you know, the rate, the exchange rate at that time was 10 to 1. So you got 10 Zim dollars for one U.S. dollar. And so uh, I asked him how much uh, for $100. This guy comes up to the window of my vehicle. Rule number two is never exchange money with somebody on the street from your vehicle. I mean, this is just not smart. Anyway, so, um, so I, 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 uh, I said, how much for $100? He said 12,000 Zim. That's, for the math majors, that's a, a rate of 120, which is really good. I mean, uh, sorry, is that right? Yeah, t- 12. Oh, man, I wasn't a math major. Math is hard. So, um, so uh, yeah, 12 to 1. Rather than 10 to 1, I'm getting 12 to 1. So I thought, this is great. So I said, okay, give me the Zim dollars first. So he counts out 1,200 Zim. I said 12,000, 1,200 Zim. So I get 1,200 Zim. Is that right? Yeah, I, give him, I get my $100. See, now you know why I got ripped off. So, uh, so... I gave him my $100, and he said, no, 50 more. You said 150. I said, I didn't say 150. He said, no. So I said, okay, you give me my money back. So he gives me my money back, all right? Now I've got my money and his money. How can this go wrong, right? So I give him his money, he takes off, and and his buddies all take off, they go running. And I look down, I've got $1 in my hand. Those American dollars, they look just all the same, right? So uh, he had folded it. I have a $1 bill in my hand. I don't know what came over me. I chased him. I got out of the truck. Rule number three, never leave your sister and her friend alone in a foreign country. <laughs> I chased him. I don't know which guy it was because now they're all scattering. And I, got, I, I chased one guy into a bathroom. And I go in the bathroom, and he's hiding in the stall with his feet up, you know? And I am so just infuriated, I'm about ready to kick the door through, and I I thought to myself, what am I doing? Am I going to beat the tar out of this guy for Jesus Christ? Is this why I'm here? (laughs) I mean, is this really part of what missionary work is all about? So I come back, and I think, oh, then my sister is in the car alone. What? I mean, so I, I think, so I come back defeated. I don't have any Zim. I've got one dollar. And uh, my sister's friend, I'll never forget, she goes, well, at least they didn't get all your money. <laughs> you still have a dollar, you know? I mean, it's like, it wasn't totally taken. Anyways, um, so, but, you know, when, when you're taken for a ride, when somebody cheats you, when somebody wrongs you, when you feel for sure that you've been wronged, there's a temptation to want uh, to make it right, to get back the thousand zim that I lost. And so it's even more tragic, though, when that kind of attitude inside of us rears itself within the church. And this is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the church in Corinth. In classic Pauline fashion, he writes the church about an issue that was obviously happening between two of its members or maybe several of its members, but he writes it to the whole congregation and he, he writes pretty sternly in this passage. And in, in verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, we really find three principles that Christians should give 
that Christians should have in order to give you a proper perspective regarding taking one another to court. Three principles about suing other believers. That's what we're looking at. The first principle is this. In light of your future role, lawsuits are trivial. In light of your future role, lawsuits are trivial, verses 1 through 4. Take a a look again at, at verse 1. It says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? So this is something that's going on. Obviously, some people were having a case against their neighbor. They were having a dispute with their neighbor. Uh, the word neighbor is not actually there, but the, the implication, the word one another is. And so tr- believers were having disputes with other believers over legal issues, somehow land or finances. They felt wrong, and they were going before the courts. Some of them were even taking advantage of fellow Christians by robbing them or defrauding them, according to verse 7. And so it helps us to understand a little bit about the Greek judicial system uh, to get a context for this, because um, what was going on in Corinth, we don't know much about what was going on in Corinth, but we know what the system was like in Athens, and since Athens was not far away, we we assume that it was uh, very similar. In Athens, lawsuits were a part of everyday life, so much so that it even became a form of entertainment. People were involved in it, they spoke about it. Uh, it wasn't televised, but it was almost because it was so it was so on such a grand scale that it involved so many people that entire towns would be talking about different court cases going on. And according to Athenian law, when two parties could not resolve a dispute amongst themselves, they went through the following process. First of all, they went through private arbitration. Each person was assigned another private citizen who had no previous interest in the case, and there was a third neutral party. So three other citizens who had no interest in the case, you each got one person to represent you in arbitration, and then a third person came in, and they tried to settle the dispute before it ever went to the court. If the five of them, you and the person you're arguing with and the other three, could not work it out, then the case was assigned to a court of 40. And that court... Uh, assigned, again, another public arbitrator to each party. And uh, according to Athenian law, every citizen of Athens had to serve as an arbitrator during his 60th year of life. So if you lived 60 years, uh, that year you became a basically a lawyer. So everybody in the whole society was training to be a lawyer. They were thinking that when I turn 60, I'm going to have to serve in this capacity. If that arbitration failed, then the case went to court with a jury. Every citizen over the age of 30 was obligated at some point or another to serve as a juror, and sometimes these juries could be in the thousands for big cases. It was always a majority that decided, but they would have huge juries, not always that large, but we do have some records of that. So historically, this was a public affair. It became widely known. But there was something that we know from Scripture that regarding the Jews, the Roman system, the Greek system, they allowed the Jews to settle their own disputes. We know this, right? Except for in the cases of capital offenses. 
If somebody was needed to be uh, punished by death, they could not decide it on their own. But the Jews, for the most part, settled all their cases. We know this because it was Pontius Pilate that they went to to try and get Christ crucified, right? Because they couldn't do that on their own, but, but they could settle all other kinds of disputes on their own. And in fact, they saw it as very important for them to do it as Jews because the Jews needed to, um, they saw themselves as people of the book, people of the, the law, the Old Testament law. And they believed the law was sufficient to handle any dispute they had. And even though uh, by rule of the day, by world powers, they were ultimately under the authority of Rome, Rome allowed the Jews to settle their own disputes according to their law. And it took things out of the court's and the Jews typically handled that. And the Jews saw it as very important because uh, by admitting that they couldn't go to, they couldn't handle it themselves, they were basically saying it's equivalent to blasphemy because if their God can't fix it, what is their God worth? And so they handled all their problems internally. And so they had the Sanhedrin, they had uh, all kinds of uh, rulers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, and they were fastidious in trying to keep the law, and they had experts in the law. And in that society, in the Jewish society, your government was your church, and so it was all wrapped up into one. You saw your church leaders as the people who are uh, above you and would handle any situation, any wrongdoing that you would have. You wouldn't dream of going to a pagan court, a Gentile court, if you were a Jew. Now, for the early church, the Roman society and Greek society saw the Christians as a Jewish sect. So they allowed Christians also to settle their own disputes as long as it didn't involve a capital offense. But in Corinth, apparently, this was a church that was largely filled with people who were secular beforehand. They were pagans before coming to faith in Christ. There were some Jews there, but by and large, many of them had been used to this whole system of the Greek system of going to law, having lawsuits against one another. And when they came to faith in Christ, they didn't leave that behind. They just transferred over their old sinful lifestyle, the old lump, the old leaven of disobedience, much like many other areas of their life. And they tried to transfer that into the church, and Paul has just warned them that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and so, you know, a little bit of evil or wickedness among you affects everybody, and so you need to stop this. And so this is what's going on in the church in Corinth. And Paul says, again in verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? What does he mean that the saints will judge the world? What does that mean? Any ideas? Has nothing to do with dead saints, right? We're not talking about a Catholic view here. Yes? Yeah, yeah. I think this is referring to the millennial reign of a future eschatological time, a time in the future. The, the Bible teaches that uh, the church is now and that this is the church time for the church where people, it's the only way of salvation is through faith in Christ. The only way to heaven is not through Old Testament Judaism, but if you're a Jew today and you want to come to, uh, to serve the true God, Yahweh, you need to trust in his son, Jesus Christ, for your salvation. You need to repent of your sins, turn and trust, and become a part of the church. 
And one day, the entire church will be raptured. The Bible teaches about this in Thessalonians, the rapture of the church where Christ will appear in the air, and those who are alive will be taken up. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first. The graves will open, and we'll have this time where there'll be this rapture of the church, worship in heaven, uh, and, and then we'll have this time where uh, there'll be seven years of terrible tribulation. The book of Revelation speaks about this in detail uh, from verses chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18 of the book of Revelation, all about these seven years of terrible tribulation. Um, during that time, there will be a, uh, a huge repentance. Uh, um, thousands of Israelites, of Jews, will repent during that tribulation, will resist the Antichrist and the world government that is trying to dominate and uh, take over the world. And uh, at the end of that seven-year period, many of those uh, Jews will be martyred, and uh, they'll be killed straight to heaven for them, and then because they become what we call tribulation saints. But then in the book of Revelation, we also have this time where Christ comes down on a white horse, and he comes down with the saints from heaven, believers, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, um, the the 144,000 from the book of Revelation, they come down, and the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year period where Satan is bound, according to Revelation chapter 20, that where there is this uh, kingdom here on earth, and it says actually in Revelation uh, 3, verse 21, it says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Revelation 2, verse 26, quotes Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, where it says, He who overcomes and keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And so there will be a time where somehow, in some way, those who are believers today who are later with Christ in heaven and later come down with him for the thousand-year millennial kingdom will rule with him, will be co-rulers with Christ. And somehow this world, which will be filled with some people who uh, came to faith in Christ during that tribulation time but didn't die, were not martyred, those people will be here on this earth, those people will be multiplying over that thousand years, and there will be a special place for the church. There'll be a special place for the apostles. There'll be a special place for those Jews who are martyred. But there will be a special place for the church. And we learn here and from other passages that we don't have the details, but somehow we will be ruling with Christ for a thousand years. It's not going to be boring. It's not going to be tedious. It's going to be with Christ. And when you think about that, then really everything else is really trivial. I mean, little lawsuits that you have now today are trivial. I, I think about this because uh, I think about that. I still think about that 1,000 Zim. 1,000 Zim, actually 990 Zim that I lost, right? Um, I think about that because it's interesting. That was in the late 90s, 97, 98. I brought some Zim with me today. I did, I, I've been collecting Zimbabwe currency for some time because it's a fascinating currency, these are some coins that were present at that time. I've got the penny, so a hundred of these would make one zim. A thousand of them would make one dollar. So that's, that's uh, but those are the coins. But what happened is 
the Zim started to devalue. And so this is one Zim dollar right here. And then notice how they're all different colors. It's really convenient that they all don't look the same. The five, the 10, the 20, the 100, Zim, the 500. This is 1,000 Zim. This is kind of what I lost right there, 1,000 Zim. And in the late 90s, this was worth $100. But then it kept continued to devalue. And so they got the 10,000 and the 20,000 and the 50,000 and the 100,000. It just kept on going. And you get down here, there's the $10 million note and the $50 million note, the $100 million note. Keeps on going down, get, got down to the $10 billion note. I'm skipping lots here. The $50 billion. The, the, and then after $50 billion, they jumped to $10 trillion note. And then $20 trillion note. And this is the largest note. Oh, there's the $50 trillion. This is the largest note that's ever been produced. This is a $100 trillion note be pretty convenient for our deficit today if it were one-to-one, right? $100 trillion, a lot of zeros on that. And after that, they, they lopped off all the zeros and even took away more zeros, and they came up with a new system of currency, and they started printing, and they started with the one-cent note, a one-penny note, which wasn't in, in use at the same time as the $100 trillion, but if you took a stack of these to get $100 trillion, it would go to the moon and back, flat. I mean, that's, that's how many, you can't even do the math on that. So five cents note, the 10 cent note. Anyways, that same story, they went all the way up to $100 billion, and then their currency failed. Because the country, Switzerland, that was selling them paper to print the, the money was being paid in their, by their own paper. And so they said, no more paper. So then they started using U.S. currency. That happened... During the years that we were serving in Africa, we watched that happen. Month, get land taken away from them, lose everything, lose their entire savings. People deal in commodities instead of money. And I keep that money because guess what? All of our money will be just as worthless as this is. That $100 trillion note when it came out was worth about $15. And today it's worth nothing. So you end up with a worthless society, everything's going to burn. And here we are, we have this future glory where we are going to reign with Christ. Do you really think you're going to be thinking about the thousand zim that you lost? Or the thousand dollars, or the ten thousand, or the million, or whatever it was, in comparison with the future? He says not only are we going to be judging others, that we'll be having ruling, judging the world or ruling over the world. In verse 3, it says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? We are not sure what he means about judging angels. There are two types of angels. There are fallen angels, and there are holy angels. Now, the word judge also can mean rule. So it's, it's unlikely that we would ever judge holy angels, because what would you judge them for, right? They've, they're holy. They've done nothing wrong. So uh, it is likely that we will maybe judge fallen angels. We know that at the end of the millennium, Satan will be released, and that then uh, there will be another uprising. Christ will again squelch everything, and Satan and all his fallen angels will be cast into the lake of burning sulfur for all eternity. So it's possible that we'll be part of that judgment as well. 
Uh, or this could be speaking generally of the fact that, I mean, God is up there. He's created the angels. We are below the angels now, but somehow maybe we will rule over holy angels. I don't know. It's unclear. This passage is difficult to understand, but you take it at face value. The point is this. He, he talks about, verse 4, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account to the church? He's not slamming people who are involved in the court system here. He's just saying they don't know anything about eternity. We know everything about eternity. We see things from an eternal perspective. Why would we bring somebody with a limited perspective of things down here and have him judge issues in the church? One commentator said about this passage, the poorest equipped believer who seeks the counsel of God's word and spirit is much more competent to settle disagreements between fellow believers than the most highly trained and experienced unbelieving judge who is devoid of divine truth. This is Paul's argument. His argument is you have a future role that deems all lawsuits down here as trivial. But there's a second principle in our passage, second principle And that is your current witness, in light of your current witness, lawsuits are terrible. Not only in light of your future role, lawsuits are trivial, but in light of your current witness, lawsuits are terrible. Verses 5 and 6, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. This is a very stern passage. The way it's written is very strong. Back in chapter 4, verse 14, remember when we were in that passage, we we talked about the fact that Paul says it's not his purpose to shame, shame them, but just to warn them. But here he says, it is my purpose to shame you. I say this to your shame, he says. They should feel ashamed of what they were doing. Paul had spent a year and a half teaching and preaching and worshiping with them. Was there not one person in their church who was wise enough to resolve the disputes of others? Verse 5, it's ironic. It really, this would shout back at them. Look at verse 5. Is there not, is that there is not among you one wise man? If you've been reading this book at all, you know that there's a huge issue between wisdom of the world and wisdom of the Lord. Sophos, Sophia, wisdom, this word, this Greek word wisdom is is thrown back and forth in this letter. And they prized worldly wisdom. That's why they said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. They wanted to be associated with somebody who looked very intellectually strong. And here he says, ironically, sarcastically, with all your love for wisdom, is there not one among you who's wise enough to resolve these disputes? Brother goes against brother, and that before unbelievers. So this raises a question, because the the clear teaching of this passage is that unbelievers should not go to court with one another. And I wanted to have a little discussion this morning, because I think this is a, a difficult passage for us to hear, and we start to think about situations that we know of, and I don't want you to bring up any current lawsuits that you're in, or that we're in as a church. Um... I don't want you to bring up any specific situations, but I want to ask the question, 
does that mean it's wrong for Christians to ever go to court? What is this saying? Is this saying that it's wrong for you to ever go to court? Is it ever wrong for you to go to court with somebody else who claims to be a Christian? Is there any situation where it may be? Are there any loopholes? Yes. I said wrong. Is it, is, it, is, it, is it morally wrong? Is it unbiblical for you to ever appear into court with someone else who claims to be a believer? Okay, so the, quest, the scenario that's been given is let's suppose you have a house and you have, um, you have somebody, a Christian comes to your house and gets injured and they uh, sue, their insurance company sues you or that you, they sue you so that your homeowner's insurance will pay them out. Is that wrong? Is there a problem with that? What if, you don't have, what if you don't have insurance? What if it means you're going to lose your house? It's a different scenario. I'm, I'm trying to push it to the extreme, and we're going with a comfortable scenario. But I'm, I'm asking, is it ever wrong? I mean, it, I mean you, you give me a situation where, okay, in that situation, really, it's my insurance company's going to your insurance company, and they're duking it out, Right? Yes. Okay, so suing according to a contract could be okay, you think, but suing to get sordid gain would be wrong? I, I think this passage actually speaks beyond that because uh, though they were defrauding one another, clearly somehow, uh, before this whole argument about your future role and the fact that we are to be judges, we're going to be judges in the kingdom why would we go before a secular court to discuss to, to 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 battle any issue down here on earth? Yes. I have a question because, like in America, seventy percent or more of Americans claim to be Christians. Yeah. Clearly absurd. Yeah. Yeah. What about the old Christian card clause? Up, oh, you can't take me to court. I'm a Christian, right? So let me give you three possible interpretations of this passage. Three views. One is this passage forbids all lawsuits, even between believers and unbelievers. There are some who hold that, that Christians should never go to court, that if they ask for your cloak, you give them your your coat also, and they ask you to go one mile, you you go two miles with them, and it's just really extreme, no matter who they are, Roman soldier, whatever, Matthew chapter 5, you just go twice as much as they want, okay? It'd be wrong for you to go to court 
against anyone. And there are some people who hold that. Some people out of personal conviction, I have no problem with that. Some people out of biblical conviction, I'm not sure that this is what that passage is teaching. Um, What's the problem with that teaching? The problem is it goes beyond what this passage teaches, because this passage is clearly talking about two believers. So to say that this passage teaches it's wrong for you to ever go to court against anyone is not, is not really valid. The second view, first one is this, this passage forbids all lawsuits, even between believers and unbelievers. The second view, this passage forbids, forbids any and all lawsuits between people who profess to be believers, between people who profess to be believers. And that's a difficult one because uh, you could be wronged and now you have a professing believer who, uh, who, who says, you, know, you can't take me to court because I'm a Christian and you'll be violating 1 Corinthians chapter 6 if you do that. Obviously, Christ isn't that important to you if you go directly up in opposition to his teaching. That's, that would be the argument against you. Yeah, Stephen. Right. So sometimes you are being sued by someone else, and you may need to go to court. Uh, and let, let's just say it's in a, maybe a child custody hearing uh, where you're trying to look out for the betterment of a child, and it's in the court. Um, so that would be one example. Let's, let's look at the third view. The third view is this. This passage forbids Christians to sue persons who are members in good standing to a Christian church that is faithful to Scripture. This passage forbids Christians to sue persons who are members in good standing to a Christian church that is faithful to Scripture. Are there any problems with that statement? Yes. Yeah. So where does church discipline come in? And that, that, that actually, uh, so let's say, let's say that you have somebody who's defrauding lots of people intentionally. He's a real wolf among the sheep, and he's harming people in financially or in another way. And so, um, and this person just doesn't stop, okay? If the church gets involved and disciplines him out, then you treat him as an unbeliever, and then he's no longer, it's clear, that he's no longer, and really, I would say this whole passage is written with the premise that they're in church together. Take, take a look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not, um, there's not among you one wise man? So the, the, the context here is within a local church. Now, I would say this would apply between two churches uh, that maybe you have people from two different cities or two different churches in the same place where they have a dispute, but they're both biblical churches. They're going to deal with this. I've dealt with this. I've had a situation where I had two businessmen who had a business that failed, and they were disputing over who got what in the business. And they came to me, and they said, uh, you know, we've decided that the leadership of this church can decide Whatever happens, here's, here's all that we have. Here's what we, both of us want. Will you help us decide who gets what? And so 
we got involved in that. And even though one of them went to a different church, uh, they were both willing to submit to our church leadership. That was in South Africa. And so, so there are situations like that. There are other situations where sometimes you'll have um, a believer who is um, uh, at an, another biblical church, and, and both elderships will get involved in helping to decide what should happen. But ultimately, uh, this, is the, this is the church. And it's, it, the, the point here of this passage, of this verses 5 through 7, is that it's a bad testimony to bring all the garbage that goes on between two believers, and let's, let's just be honest, we're still sinners, right? So there, there are wrongs that are done. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. There's a, there's a sense in here in which, in light of your current witness, lawsuits are just terrible because they bring all the garbage of the church before the world, and we're to be different than the world. So, any questions about what we've talked about so far before we move on to the third principle? Yes? No, I don't think lawsuits are permissible between two believers uh, who are in a, a, a biblical church ever. I, I take that position. I don't think that if you're two genuine believers and you're in biblical churches, you're not permitted to sue one another. Um, and I guess the, um, uh, so, um, and if you're, if you're in that suit, you should both, what this is saying, you should yield the situation to someone else in the church. Could be anyone. Could be a, a Christian lawyer who's in the church. And he's maybe not even an elder. But if you both, you both should come to agreement and say, listen, let, let, let him arbitrate this for us. Let's not bring our garbage before the world. Yes? Just to be clear, this is strictly about the two believers, but a believer can do that to an unbeliever? A believer, this passage is not forbidding believers to sue unbelievers. You are not obligated to sue unbelievers, just to make that clear. This is not promoting this, but it's, it does not prohibit it. Yes? Yeah, so, so the way he's written this, there are several questions here, and it's more than three times that he asks these questions. Verse 1, does anyone? Verse 2, do you not know? Verse 2, are you not competent? Verse 3, do you not know? Verse 3, how much more? Verse 4, do you appoint then? Um, and uh, some of this language, this is not easy uh, for us to translate this passage. It's not written very clearly. It's very difficult to... Uh, some of these sentences can be interpreted as questions or as statements, and, and they're, they're actually phrased very the same way. Uh, and so in the original, there were no question marks, so those were added later. So it's very difficult to look at this, but it does seem he, he is coming unglued here. He's heard about these lawsuits going on in there, and he's saying, think about this. Are you, have you not thought about your future reign with Christ and how trivial lawsuits are here on earth, and this is consuming you, and be, the church is becoming known for the same thing that goes on in the world? And furthermore, 
Do you know what bad testimony this is for Christ? That there seems to be no difference in the church than outside in the world? We'll move on to the third one, and if you've got more questions, we'll, we'll catch them then. Third principle, in light of your past gain, in light of your past gain, lawsuits are unmerciful. So we have, in light of your future role, lawsuits are trivial. In light of your current witness, lawsuits are terrible. In light of your past gain, lawsuits are unmerciful. Unmerciful. Verses 7 through 11. He says, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? I just love that question. I got to stop there. Isn't that the greatest question you've ever heard? Somebody comes to you about injustice and you thought, hey, have you ever considered being wronged, defrauded? Why, would, why wouldn't you? Is that, that is so countercultural. Who asks that question? Why not rather be defrauded? Don't you think that'd be better? Uh, um. Why not rather be defrauded, verse 7? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, notice the past tense here, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Verse 7 says this is an utter failure that you would go to court against one another. It's far better to lose materially than to sacrifice spiritually. Anyone who doesn't know Christ would say, this is foolish. But the clear biblical teaching is accept material losses to pursue things that are better spiritually. They'd already lost because they're, they're going after one another. And, and he, the reason they've lost is because of the division in the body of Christ. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're separating the body of Christ so that there's so much animosity. If you've ever been in a family lawsuit where, where, where one family member has sued another family member and it got really ugly, how, how fun is Christmas? You know, those times, those sweet times that are supposed to be special where the rest of the world tries to act like the church. The church should be a place where it's different, where there's a sweetness. And the solution to that is be wronged, be cheated, let yourself be defrauded. You say, am I just supposed to forget about the fact that I got ripped off? Well, what you're supposed to do, yeah, you should always have a forgiving attitude, right? You should always be willing to forgive, That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be restitution. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be an attempt at justice. But it should never go before the public courts. What it means is you go to to people in the church to help you resolve this. You see, I think our motives get so wrapped up here, and we start to 
um, really think about our own self-gain, and that gets tied in with it all. And that's why Paul, I think, just says it's better to be wronged. And this is not the only place that Scripture teaches that. Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near. Matthew 5, verse 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Psalm 37, verses 3 through 6. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. One of my favorite verses is verse 5 of Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord. I love that word. The Hebrew word commit literally means to roll off onto. The illustration I usually give when I come to that passage is that of loading a camel. In ancient times, this word was used as the final word when placing a burden on a camel. Have you ever loaded a camel before? I haven't, but I've read about it. And the way that they loaded camels was they built a ramp and they had the camel kneel next to the ramp, and they rolled the burden up the ramp. And the final, final word that they said before they rolled it off onto was commit. It was that Hebrew word commit. If you did it halfway, it fell in between the camel and the ramp, and it was a mess for everybody. And we are to commit our way to the Lord, to roll it off onto him, the one who sees everything, the God who's just, who cares, and commit it to him so that the burden is off of us and all on him. And we've got to do that completely. And so this involves you praying, Lord, you've seen it. From my perspective, I've been wronged. I've committed this to the person. They're not doing anything about it. I've gone to the church. They've decided this. I'm still not completely happy, but ultimately I commit it to you. Help me to love my brother because he's part of the body of Christ. And look at this. Look at this list here, verses 9 and following. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. These unrighteous people are people who are characterized by these sins. Those who are, who are characterized by fornication, by idolatry, by adultery, by being effeminate, Male prostitutes, possibly, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And, and the, the implication here is that that's the main thing that has dominated their life. This is what they're known by. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Spirit of God. You have the same Spirit. You have been cleansed. You have been set apart. You have been declared righteous by the Almighty God. The riches that you have, think about this, the riches that you have in Christ, how do they compare to anything on this planet? This is why I say unmerciful. Look what you have in Christ. 
for you to be so wrapped up over something that's going to burn, over something all money will be worthless, all land worthless, rubbish. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to go on for eternity. And Romans 8.18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, which tells us that there'll be nothing on this planet that ever happens to you as painful as it is, and we know that there are painful circumstances. I don't want to discount that. But there'll be nothing on this planet that happens to you that when you get to heaven, you can even compare with the glory which shall be revealed in you. No one gets to heaven and say, yeah, I suppose it was worth it after all that. They're going to say that was nothing. That was nothing. Therefore, do not dare to disgrace the name of him who died for you. In light of your future role, lawsuits are trivial. In light of your current witness, lawsuits are terrible. In light of your past gain, lawsuits would be unmerciful. You have so much in Christ. Last opportunity for any questions. Yes. Yeah, divorce is, divorce is not two people coming together. Divorce is one person splitting apart, and it's, it's why it's so painful. Because the, Yeah, and they argue over the assets, and it may... Here's the thing. You may have a situation where you have two believers, and maybe there's biblical grounds for the divorce, Maybe there's been infidelity, and so the divorce occurs, and they're both still in the church, and because divorce in our country goes through the courts, it may be that they both have to appear, so that would be an exception where two believers might have to appear against each other and let a court decide. That's one of the sad realities, yeah. it's a good question. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this challenging passage. Thank you, Lord, for Paul, who had such a biblical perspective, such a divine perspective, such a perspective that was heavenly, that was one that you see. Thank you for allowing us to have a glimpse at this and see things that here on earth are so temporal. And how precious is the body of Christ. We're so grateful that we can be here together. Please make our fellowship even sweeter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.